Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. All right, good evening, everyone. We'll go ahead and get started. It's great to see everyone this evening. We're starting a new quarter class on the book of Isaiah. And I teach it to you with fear and trembling. Uh, it's a um, mountain of a book. But at the same time, I'm very excited about it to uh, help lead us on our journey in Isaiah. Just curious how many have ever taught a class on Isaiah? Any of the men? Okay, we got, <laughs> great. Uh, who's ever sat in a class on Isaiah? Okay, we got a few, great. There's uh, plenty of us here to contribute and to learn from uh, as we go along together. Message some with uh, Jean Matthias today. She wanted the materials and was telling me this is the one night of the week on Wednesday night that Tony stays up past 7.30 p.m. for our live stream. Um, so they're online with us, and we'll uh, remember them in our prayer. Uh, is there any other prayer requests as we open in prayer? All right, then. Let's pray together. Our Holy Father... We are so grateful, Father, to come before you, to come together to study your word and to learn from it, to be challenged by it, to grow together. We thank you for all of the souls here, for the children here who were being brought up to develop their faith, and for all the the parents and um, grandparents and each and every member and what they contribute to the church family here. We ask that you'll bless our study this evening. In Christ's name, amen. All right. So we're going to spend the first 15 or 20 minutes going through some foundational introductory material, just probably five or six key concepts, and then we're hopefully going to dive into the text in the latter part of this first class. And whatever we don't get to, we'll... Uh, spend a few minutes on next week. Just a few class goals I wanted to mention up front. For this class, it's somewhat maybe unique to study Isaiah. One of my goals is this, is just to make sure we're uh, studying the whole of God's Word. And Isaiah is uh, very favored by the New Testament writers, uh, Paul especially. And so it's a great opportunity for us to to study this book and to survey it is really what it's going to be. Um, We're going to try to touch every chapter, but we're not going to be able to get into a lot of detail. Secondly, this will help us get a fuller picture of the promises that came through Christ and through his kingdom. In 1 Peter, I'm just going to mention these passages. You don't necessarily have to flip to them, but they'll be familiar to you, I believe. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12 Uh, As to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you 
made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So there's indication here the prophets didn't even understand fully what they were prophesying and teaching. And even angels uh, sought to understand these meanings. Now we have the New Testament that helps reveal to us a lot of uh, the ambiguity of these prophecies, but there's still some of that there. But the New Testament uh, will draw out the meaning of these, and we can really understand more fully uh, the Old Testament through the interpretations of the New Testament. So we're going to spend the last part of our uh, series on that. In Luke 24, as you remember, when Christ was walking down uh, the road to um, Emmaus incognito, he tells those men, you foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to come into his glory? So he says it should have been apparent from the Old Testament that Christ was to suffer. What, what does that bring to mind when you think where you might go in the Old Testament for that? There you go. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things written about himself in all the scriptures. Hmm. The name Jesus Christ coming up in the the Old Testament. But he says he was drawing out from the prophets and the Old Testament things about himself. So he was, uh, Jesus interpreted the Old Testament through a lens, a messianic lens about himself. And we're going to get into a lot of that this quarter. The last point here is to gain a deeper understanding of the New Testament use of Isaiah. I've got, wow, that's really hard to see. Uh, what, what that is is a snippet out of um, uh, Bible Logos, and it's a sorting of all of the quotation, citation, allusion, and echoes of Old Testament. And Isaiah is at the top, and those are four different categories. We'll probably talk about that a little bit later, but quotation and citation would be a direct reference and an allusion would be just similar wording that alludes back to a passage. An echo is like an idea that you're drawing. And if you sum all those up, Isaiah has the most, according to this software. Uh, in terms of just straight citations and quotations, I think it's second to the Psalms. But it's on up there, and so it was highly favored. And uh, it'll be a great opportunity for us to look at the immediate context of Isaiah and his day And then um, as we go along, I'll I'll try to point out where these are quoted, but we're not going to spend a lot of time in the New Testament context. Then we'll kind of jump to the New Testament, and having a fairly fresh memory of what we've studied, we'll be able to understand uh, hopefully more fully what uh, is being argued in the New Testament through drawing on Isaiah. On this point, lastly, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3, Paul was describing the prophetic um, utterance of the New Testament church in the first century. Um, And he says, but the one who prophesies speaks to the people for edification, exhortation, and consolation. Edification would be building up. Exhortation would be encouraging. Consolation would be comfort. And so these same three principles, building up, encouraging, comfort, can apply to prophecies 
uh, even as we study them today. Okay, on, in your handout folder, there's a folder uh, should be on your row. If you don't have one, uh, raise your hand and we can make sure you get one. And okay, you'll have some handouts there for this class, and there's a chapter summary of this section that we're going over. And I'll have one of those each week for us. I'm not going to teach off of that, but that's to give you um, a, a gist of, of what we're talking about. And there's a schedule in there. If you look at that, you can see there's chunks of scripture that we're covering each week in a survey style. So it would be very beneficial if you're able to read those ahead of time. I know some people have other study plans, and so it, it may be challenging, but um, that's what I'll pose before you to prepare for the class. And um, we'll pretty much stick to the schedule as best we can. I'll also try to show this every class, and this is our roadmap of Isaiah as we go along. I'm going to have to look at this. <laughs> oh, there we go. We're covering this introduction and Isaiah's commission and charge tonight. I've highlighted here in stars the messianic prophecies that are referenced in this first section, and then we get to the second section, they'll be similar. But this entire uh, first section, chapters 1 through 39, is about... Isaiah prophesying to Judah during the time we'll discuss here in a few minutes. And it deals with warnings against Judah because of the circumstances that their society was in and, and how they had uh, rejected God and had gone to idolatry. And conveniently, coincidentally, there's 39 books of the Old Testament. There's 39 chapters in the first part of Isaiah and then the next section is about comfort, and it really deals with about 150 years later when the people are exiting out of exile from Babylon through uh, the release of Cyrus the Mede that allows them to return, and it deals with comfort. Chapter 40, verse 1 says, Comfort, O comfort, my people. And there's sections dealing with their uh, restoration to God, their... Uh, new heavens and new earth that we'll talk about in the last section, and then in the middle section about the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, and what that means. Um, and of course, there's, that's where Isaiah 53 is contained. But throughout the book, the servant of the Lord or the servant is not always talked about as the Messiah. We'll study that more in that section. This brings up a, a quick point I want to make on the unity of Isaiah. Um, probably in the last 200 years, modern critical scholarship has looked at the Bible and tried to minimize the prophetic aspect of it, specifically with the book of Isaiah, to try to show that there was actually two different authors of Isaiah. So there was a first Isaiah, and then there was a Deutero-Isaiah, if you've heard that term. I think sometimes it's even split further. Um, there's a good book I'll recommend that I read on this. Uh, it's The Unity of Isaiah by uh, Oswald Alice. It's a short book, but it's it's pretty scholarly. Some of it was over my head. He wrote that not long after the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947. And one external piece of evidence is that the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, in the, the Qumran Caves was found the scroll of Isaiah, the single scroll of Isaiah without any break between chapters 39 and 40. And so 
there, it wasn't like there were two separate manuscripts there. Uh, internally, though, internal evidence, uh, the New Testament authors quote Isaiah, and they name Isaiah from both sections of this book uh, without any delineation between first or second Isaiah. And in fact, I believe it's John chapter 12, uh, around verse 37 through 40. I think we'll look at that tonight or next week. But um, John quotes from both sections of Isaiah and calls it Isaiah right in the same passage. So uh, there's really no, this is a theory and there's no proof for it. And in chapter 45, one of the difficulties for scholars is the prediction about Cyrus the Mede, that over 150 years before he released the people, he's called out by name and what he was going to do to have them go rebuild the temple. And that was a key component on God uh, showing his sovereignty above the idols, that he could predict this. And so for scholarship to try to take that and say, oh, no, that was just written contemporary during that time, it really takes away the meaning of, of that prophecy for what it was written to for the people. Any questions on that so far? I know we're, we're flying. All right, a bit on the language. A lot of the early prophets were oral prophets. Uh, you think of Moses, of course he wrote the Pentateuch, but uh, Moses, Elijah, Elisha did a lot of preaching, but they weren't necessarily writing. Um, we see that the writing prophets pick up beginning after the divided kingdom. So these prophets began writing their oracles. Um, and we have the very long book of Isaiah, 66 chapters. Um, Isaiah's prophetic ministry was 50 to 60 years long. And so obviously he spoke a lot more than what we just have written. Um, but God inspired these prophets through the language and culture of their day and using the various means, as it's talked about in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, he spoke through various means. And, and so we see in the prophets uh, poetry. We see apocalypse. We see narrative prose, just history. Think of like first part of Daniel. And so in Isaiah, we see mostly Hebrew poetry and parallelism. Parallelism is the idea, it's two similar ideas that really help expound on each other with different language. And so I've listed two examples here that we can look at to kind of see this, these couplets. And so on the first one is Isaiah 44, verse 3, for I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and blessing on your descendants. So kind of looking at this and thinking through it, what would water on the thirsty land be related to in this verse? Yeah, spirit on your offspring. And so, and then streams on the dry ground seem to indicate blessings on your descendants. So it's the Hebrew poetry in this A-B-A-B kind of format. Isaiah 60, verse 5. Then you will see and be radiant, and your heart will thrill and rejoice, because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. This one is a little different because of the 
order, but it's more of like AABB, um, because the abundance of the sea is compared to the wealth of the nations. That's kind of a telling tip there when you see the sea talked about or the tumultuous sea in visions, such as um, the four beast vision in Daniel chapter 7, says the beast came up out of the sea. That comparison is typically used to talk about the nations, the Gentile nations, the world. Um, so not to get too much into that, but uh, hopefully these examples will at least kind of help us clue in as we're reading along Isaiah. And it, it is strange to kind of our ears to read poetry and um, understand it as truth, as God's word, but that's the accommodative language that was written uh, through Isaiah, or by Isaiah through the Spirit of God. The exilic and the post-exilic prophets, um, think Daniel and Ezekiel and so on, wrote less in poetry and more in historical narrative and apocalyptic. And this, the poetry and the apocalyptic, it makes the prophetic writings difficult. Um, they're filled with, with many common themes and imagery. And so, A, having the New Testament as we described and how they're interpreted by the New Testament writers helps us understand. Uh, but also, um, studying those contexts and understanding what images are drawn out. And so that's part of the themes handout that you have. Is As I studied through, I tried to highlight verses that use common themes um, of the land, of the mountain, of the vineyard. Uh, the righteous remnant is described a lot in the prophets, um, the servant, and others. And there's more than that. Uh, the exodus comes up as an image a lot in Isaiah. I want to talk briefly about some Old Testament hinge points or peg points from the prophets I think are important. I don't want to assume everybody has the same background, maybe didn't you know, grow up in the church or in Bible class to know some of these earlier facts in Scripture. And so I'm going to rattle off a few of these, and then we'll turn to, to Deuteronomy 18 uh, specifically. Back in Genesis 15, and really in chapter 12, and again in 15, uh, God promised, set in, in, in place the Ab- Abrahamic covenant, or covenant with Abraham, that he would become a nation whose population would be like the sand of the sea and the stars of heaven, that uh, it would prosper and be a blessing to all those who bless them, and they would inherit a land promised to them. If you'll flip to Deuteronomy 18, Moses was writing to his people And in verse 15, Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, Moses writes, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. Uh, this seems to be an exemplar, a reference to the Christ as the prophet. But he goes on in verse 18 to say, um, maybe that verse 18 is the reference I'm wanting to point you to there for that. But let's go ahead and read 18 through 20. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall be that 
it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. So there's a criteria here given for prophets that they're uh, speaking presumptuously, that is, uh, predicting something to, well, I'm, I'm getting on to the next passage here. Let's keep reading 21 and 22. I didn't go for, far enough. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So here's a criteria for a true prophet, and that is their ability to predict accurately something to come to pass, and it does come to pass. And so if they're not able to do that, uh, they're a false prophet, and it actually says he shall die, he shall be stoned. But that isn't enough. Uh, If you'll flip back a few pages to Deuteronomy 13, there's really a second criteria that's given for a true prophet. Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 3. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which uh, he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So this is the case where somebody comes along and predicts something and happens to get it right. And Moses here says that's not enough. If that prophet accurately predicts something and it comes to pass, but their teachings, that is their preachings, are drawing you away from Yahweh God, from the God of Israel, then reject that prophet. And so there's this this twofold purpose of a prophet that we'll look at uh, here briefly. Flip over to Deuteronomy 28. It's a very important passage, Deuteronomy 28. This deals with the covenant cursings and blessings that Moses pronounces to Israel. This is important because one mission of the prophets of forthtelling is really pointing the people back to these covenant blessings and cursings. We're not going to read these because it's a very long section. But in chapter 28, really verses 1 through 14, gives the blessings of Israel if they follow God. They'll be blessed in these uh, many ways. And in verse 15, Deuteronomy 28, verse 15, But it shall come about, if you do not obey the Lord your God, to observe and do all his commandments and his statutes, with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you. And the chapter proceeds with horrible curses, uh, you know, consumption with fever, with the sword, with blight, tumors and boils, the things that came upon Egypt. Um, in verse 30, it says, you shall build a house, but you will not live in it. That is, somebody else will, will uh, come in and ravage your city and take your belongings and, and your house and invade. And it continues on through that chapter. 
If you'll flip to chapter 30, Deuteronomy 30, verse 14. Deuteronomy 30, verse 14. Moses encourages the people, though. He says, The word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may observe it. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. And then in verse 19 of chapter 30, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, and I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. So choose life in order that you may live and your descendants. And so you're familiar with this passage. You know, I've set before you life or death, choose life. So this passage uh, is very important for the people to uh, remember in order to, that the covenant that God made with them is conditional. In order for them to receive those blessings, they had to follow God and to trust in Him. And it wasn't an impossible task. The word of the God, the word is very near you, in your mouth and on your heart. It's there for them to follow. Second Samuel seven, as you'll probably recognize that passage, God promised David that his descendants should have an everlasting. Uh, rule forever on his throne, the throne of David. And this is an important theme throughout the Old and the New Testament. Think of uh, like Psalm 89. And this is brought up in Acts uh, chapter 2 as well and uh, fulfilled through Jesus Christ. And then uh, the nation is divided, Israel and Judah, in 1 Kings chapter 12. And this is really where the, uh, the latter prophets begin. So let's talk just a minute about that. I know we're already coming up on over halfway. Why the prophets, the Nevi'im, they're called, is literally spokesperson. So this is a spokesperson, but it's also a class of writings in Hebrew. Writings would be the prophets, um, and it would be First uh, and Second Samuel, the kings, and then the prophet, prophetic books that we have would be included in the prophets. So we'll talk about the why here in just a minute. This timeline chart that you can maybe see, (laughs) I can send anyone these slides who needs them, by the way. They cover about a 500-year period from the divided kingdom to the return of Judah from exile and even to the close of the Old Testament canon with uh, Malachi there in about 400 B.C. So you have these prophets that come during this 500-year period And I actually have a sheet that's a more detailed description of each of the prophets and their timeline that that may be handy at times. Uh, But you can see there's contemporaries with each other. So during Isaiah's time, Hosea was prophesying to the northern kingdom, to Israel. And we'll look at Hosea some as we go because there's a lot of common themes. Amos had just uh, prophesied to the northern kingdom right before Isaiah began. And then Micah is contemporary with Isaiah, and he's actually prophesying to both northern until they fall, and then southern kingdoms. And so along with Isaiah is Hosea, Micah, and Amos that are kind of together in this time period of the the latter part of the northern kingdom's uh, time before they, they get conquered by Assyria. This cycle up at the top 
as we read through, you're going to see this, or we're going to see this oscillation between the prophet calling out their sin, urging repentance and judgment, and then all of a sudden he'll be looking ahead to a day of restoration or a day of glory, and really kind of with no warning. <laughs> and so you'll see this cycle and this this restoration, it's depicted in images that are related to a mountain being established, to the land flourishing, to Zion, the city being rebuilt. And these were all images that the people would understand and relate to during their time, uh, being under besieged by Assyria, being taken captivity, captive, and being brought out. These images um, would, would relate to them. And, and restoration for, for the nation. There's two aspects to the prophetic's teaching, really. You've probably heard this before. The idea of foretelling. This is simply preaching on the current state of the people in their society and their culture and relating God's view of how they're living. And, oh, I think I lost my slide. Pointing them back to the covenant blessings and cursing, saying, if you follow... God's law, you'll be blessed. If you don't, you'll be cursed. And so um, they say, the word of the Lord has come to me, or uh, they'll say the word of the Lord. And so it's important for us to remember these are not just um, old, senile men venting at people. Uh, This is the word of the Lord. These are sermons and depictions that are, are brought from the word of God. And I think of Isaiah as old, but really... For him to have prophesied for 60 years, he probably began when he was 20 or 30. So it's weird to think of a prophet being like younger than me when he began. But um, this is a majority of, of the prophets, honestly. People think of the foretelling, but the foretelling uh, is a majority of what makes up of what makes up Isaiah. And foretelling, that is foretelling of future events, that's used to confirm the message as truly from God, as we looked at earlier, for his contemporaries, because they were false prophets. So Isaiah had to show that what he was teaching was truly from God through his foretelling. And also it's used to prove God's sovereignty over the idols that we'll look at in the latter part of Isaiah, and for future generations that are able to look back and see, um, for example, what Cyrus did in freeing the captives, the exiles, and so it, it, it's a, a, a stamp in history that benefits future generations uh, for all time of God's sovereignty. And this is a minority of the content. Um, one scholar summed up that I read, if you, if you sum up all the future prophecy, it's one-sixth of the Bible. I don't know. But it's, it's a small portion compared to the, the fourth telling. Um, and I, there's probably 20 or so passages in Isaiah that describe this future restoration age, this golden age that's going to happen and with the coming of the Messiah and the Messianic kingdom. And that's really what it's pointing to, is the Messianic age and the Messianic kingdom that we're under. Um, one last thing on this is the idea of prophetic, perfect voice. And in fact, I'm losing my voice as I say that. It was a loud flop. Um, the prophets will often speak of future events as if they've already happened or as if they're happening right now in the prophetic perfect tense. 
Um, and it, so it can kind of make prophecy confusing to interpret. Uh, but that's something to be aware of, and um, Alice points that out in his book as well. I said that that's the last thing, but this is actually the last thing. Sometimes the prophets would have sign acts, which were a mix of foretelling and foretelling. Um, Hosea was told to go and marry a harlot, Gomer, um, and she would go into harlotry and he would buy her back. And this was, as you know, represented God's view of uh, in relationship to Israel. Um, Hosea is told to name his children in ways that would be living, walking signs of God calling Israel back. Uh, Isaiah walks around naked and barefoot for three years uh, as a sign against Egypt being carried away as captives by Assyria. Ezekiel is told not to mourn the death of his wife publicly uh, to show how God would not mourn Judah's impeding besiegement by Babylon. And so these, um, Hosea in particular, that was a, a critical time for the northern kingdom who was about to be taken captive by Assyria. And so uh, it's a very blatant um, walking example to get in the people's face, to try to show them uh, this is what God thinks of what you're doing. You've got to turn around now. Uh, so sign acts. And um, you might even consider Jesus going into the temple uh, and what he did with overturning the tables as a type of sign act of what, what was happening. Um, I haven't thought a lot about that, but that kind of came to mind uh, in terms of, of New Testament examples. If somebody would somebody want to read the first uh, three verses of Isaiah? Thank you. So we'll get into the first chapter here shortly, but I wanted to note these kings that are mentioned and touch on them briefly. What's, what's not shown on here is a parallel tract with the northern kingdom Israel. Uh, and there's a detailed sheet on that in your handout if you want to be reminded as we go which kings did what. Um, how many righteous kings of Israel were there? Do you remember? None. <laughs> they degraded deeper and deeper into idolatry, and so they did not heed prophets like Hosea and Amos. Though Israel would fall to Assyria in 721 B.C., um, just seven, excuse me, just 20 to 30 years after Isaiah began. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more next week about Assyria and kind of the external landscape of what's happening. But pro- Isaiah's prophetic ministry lasted uh, about 50 to 60 years during these four kings that were just read. And there's still a, a general, general downward trajectory of the people of Judah. Um, they lasted 120 years longer likely due to the work of these kings, these good kings and the prophets, uh, Isaiah and Micah. Uh, But ultimately they grew wicked through their idolatry and injustice, and God would punish them as well through uh, what what nation? Babylon. Um, So they would fall in in 605 and, and 5. I wrote 685, but that's not right. 586, yeah. So 586. Um, and uh, you'll notice here up top some overlap between Jotham and um, Azariah, where there was a co-regency uh, 
father and son were reigning at the same time. And so, I'm actually trying to get through this fairly quickly. One notable thing about Judah is, uh, is that they prosper greatly under Azariah or Uzziah's reign. Um, they expanded their borders. They grew very wealthy. Um, so he was a good king. He had a blot against him, and that was his pride and presumption. If you remember, he attempted to offer up incense in the temple uh, and was opposed by the priest, and God struck him with leprosy. Um, so he would live, but with that leprosy, and his son would be co-regent during that time. Uh, Jotham, who was a righteous king, um, learned some of mis- the mistakes from his father and would continue to uh, expand the borders. We'll talk more about Hezekiah and Ahaz, Ahaz specifically, next week. Um, but those are the four kings worth noting during this. So, wow, we're like getting toward the end and just now getting into chapter one. <laughs> um, in chapter one, as we was just read, uh, heaven and earth are called to this kind of court scene uh, of Judah before God. And in fact, some translations in verse 18 of Isaiah chapter one, verse 18, uh, will say, come now, plead your case. Um, so it's almost like a court scene that's being, they're being brought before God. And um, let's read on from where we left off in verse 4. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act cor- corruptly, they've abandoned the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, they have turned away from God. Um, Verse 6, from the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. So there's a personification in this first part of the chapter of Israel as a mortally wounded person. They're mortally sick. Um, There's no healing taking place in their body. Why is that? From verse 4. They've forsaken God. They've acted corruptly. Um, they've abandoned Yahweh. And so in, in verse 7, it says, Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. And your fields, strangers devouring them in your presence. So this is kind of mentioned as a, as a current reality, but it, it won't yet be a reality. Uh, but Isaiah is saying, this is, this is what's, what will happen, or this is what is happening. This is the condition that you're in. And in the latter part of the chapter, they're going to be called or compared to a harlot. Uh, and we may be talking about that next week. Um, but that's the two images that are brought up in this chapter is this uh, sick person and the harlot. Let's read verses 9 through 11. Unless the Lord of hosts uh, had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. 
I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. A few survivors. So this idea of remnant is introduced here, and it's really a theme throughout the book of Isaiah. And it points back to Deuteronomy 28 that we read from. We didn't read the specific verse, but it's in 2862 where Moses said, though the nation was like the stars of the heaven, there would only be a remnant which would remain for God. And that may come to mind, Paul quotes that uh, in Romans 9, uh, to talk about the remnant of Israel. Isaiah also had two children. We'll read about them in chapter 8. One of their names means a remnant shall return. So only a few would come back. Um, And his life was a living parable of that. And it's not just a remnant, a physical remnant, that returns from exile. Uh, Certainly that will happen. But this idea of a righteous remnant would be those who continue to follow God. We know that even after the exiles were brought back to their land, you know, you get to Malachi and some of these passages, and the the same idolatry and the same empty religion is happening. So it's more than just the the physical uh, remnant. It's it's a spiritual. Um, it's a a people of God that would be righteous to Him and faithful to Him, and it would be a minority of the physical Israelites. Um, numerically speaking. Like Sodom and Gomorrah, I'm going to touch on this. Um, This idea of Sodom and Gomorrah is used several times in Isaiah, the concept of Sodom. Um, And it brings to mind Revelation 11.8, where it says the bodies of the two witnesses lay in the streets of the great city, spiritually called Egypt and Sodom. Egypt there would have represented their captivity, and Sodom represents perversion. Uh, And so it says where also their Lord was crucified. And so in Revelation there, these two ideas of captivity and perversion are brought together uh, to compare to Jerusalem. Jerusalem would be just like Sodom, as it's said here, uh, that they they, uh, would have been like Sodom had these few survivors not been rescued. Um, is that the first bell or the end? Is that second bell? Okay. I didn't hear the first bell. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we will pick back up then. Uh, we'll touch a little bit on chapters two through six, and then we'll jump into the next section next week. Thank you for, for your attention. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.